The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome back to the edition, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. In our first episode of 2021, coronavirus vaccines are being rolled out across the globe. But what are the challenges facing its delivery and why is the European Union lagging behind? Plus, is Boris Johnson the SNP's greatest weapon in their battle for Scottish independence? And finally, is Prince Harry just like his mother? First up, we have a package of pieces about vaccines in this week's magazine, an interview with the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, alongside writing from Richard Dobbs and Matthew Lynn. Richard, a former director of the McKinsey Global Institute, who sits on the board of the UK Statistical Authority, says a lot can go wrong in the vaccine rollout, while Matthew, a financial columnist for the Daily Telegraph, argues that the EU has botched its inoculation programme. They both join me now alongside David Salisbury, former director of immunisation at the Department of Health. Matthew, you write in this week's magazine about how the EU has botched its vaccination rollout. What exactly seems to have gone wrong? I think what went wrong initially was actually just the idea of doing it. You know, it, it, it reminded me a lot of the Euro crisis about 10 years ago, which I wrote a lot about uh, as well, which was that the EU has a kind of pattern. It, it wills the ends, but then it doesn't will the means to achieve it. So if you take the comparison with the single currency, you know, it came up with the idea of having a single currency across lots of, lots of different countries. And you could debate whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. There are kind of pros and cons. But one thing that's obvious, if you're going to do that, then you've got to put in lots and lots of stuff that kind of makes a currency work. And they came up with this idea uh, in the summer when COVID first emerged of having a pan-European health policy. And the, the, the Commission has kind of wanted health policy. Health policy is, is reserved for the member states. I mean, I'm sure David dealt with this kind of stuff a lot. I'd be able to tell us more about it. But, you know, it's reserved for the member states. The, Euro- the Commission has ambitions in that area. It came up with the idea of having a kind of pan-European strategy. It's not a terrible idea in itself. You know, virus doesn't respect borders. It crosses all over the place. It doesn't care whether you're in Germany or France or Holland. But then when you come up with the idea, have you got the means to deliver it? And that was really where it fell down. And and that we can go through various different ways in which it failed to deliver an effective vaccine strategy. Uh, You know, the first point was putting Ursula von der Leyen in charge. You go back to her record in Berlin. You know, she was defence minister in Germany. She was caught up in a whole series of of procurement scandals and delays and, and catastrophes. And there's not a huge Man, there's kind of similarities between medical equipment and military equipment. Um, you know, one of them one of them kills people and the other one doesn't, so let's make that difference. But otherwise, it's lots of complex contracts for new stuff. You're not sure whether it works or not in an emergency, in a very difficult situation. They, they didn't make a very good job of it. And we can go into some of the more detail of that. They didn't order the right vaccines, it appears. They didn't order them early enough and they didn't order them in the right quantities. David, what did you make of the EU strategy? Well, I think if you wind back to 2009, you can see where it came from. It came from the failure of having an EU procurement strategy in 2009 for the influenza pandemic. And a number of countries failed to get any influenza vaccine at that time. Others felt that they were being squeezed out by the big countries. And there was a sort of feeling that if you had a pan-European purchasing strategy 
you'd be able to negotiate lower prices. That, I think, was a fallacy then, and it's a fallacy now, because there has been effectively just a universal price for industrialised countries, irrespective of the quantity of vaccine that they ordered. The theory is fair that everybody would get per capita a share of the total contract that was placed, but you have very little flexibility about how you can, country by country, interact with the producer if you go down this route. And just like the UK approach, you've got to choose whether you're going to put your money on one horse or maybe two horses in the race, or if you're going to cover all the horses in the hope that at least one of them will come in a winner. Um, the UK appears to have covered all the bets and gives it better access to vaccines. The EU took a narrower approach and they may regret that. That's the point that Matt Hancock makes in an interview in this week's issue, that we, we bet on all the horses here and now oh, that's proven to have been perhaps a wise decision. Richard, looking at the UK situation, how do you think the rollout of the vaccine is going? Well, so far it's going pretty well. I mean, we have rolled out... Um, as Matthew says in his piece, uh, more in the UK than the rest of uh, Europe put together. So it's a great start in terms of rolling out. Um, yes, uh, we've got to gear it up. And the, the real challenge we have with the vaccine rollout is we're competing against this new Kent strain of the, the virus. And that Kent strain is growing exponentially. When we stopped our lockdown last time, it, we actually tamed the virus. It's unclear, given that this new strain increases the R number, the, the rate at which people pass on the virus, by 0.4 to 0.7, that even a lockdown uh, will actually stop growth. So we could actually be in a dire position. So instead of it being rolling it out at a normal pace to be able to undo lockdown, this may be a race of the vaccine versus the virus, which one can happen fastest. So we have a, a higher priority now than we would have had two months ago. I'd say this week's issue is characterised by Matt Hancock being fairly optimistic about everything. And then Richard, I'd say your piece is, piece is perhaps a bit more pessimistic. David, what do you think is the right approach right now? Should we be feeling optimistic? Or is, I mean, with the third lockdown having been announced, is there more reason to be pessimistic? Well, my experience tells me to be cautious because, like Blair said it's education, education, education. Here, it's supply, supply, supply. And the whole of a vaccine campaign, success or failure, is driven by supply. And supply is not in the government's hands. It's in the hands of the manufacturers, and they have got many other customers who are all making the same demands. And manufacturing vaccines is not like making aspirin. You can't just open the tap and get more. So it's rate limited. There's always production failures of vaccines and there's always bottlenecks throughout the process. So I always start from a cautious position because you never get more vaccine than you hoped for. You always get less. Richard, one of the points that you make in your piece is that trailblazers tend to be the first to encounter setbacks. Do you think the UK is well poised to tackle these potential setbacks, which you mentioned as being manufacturing delays, postcode lotteries, people getting lost in the system? Uh, the bit that worries me, in addition to the point about ensuring that we get enough supply, is how we get the most at-risk people to take it up. I worry with the NHS IT problems historically that we may not even have contact details for a significant proportion of this group. 
And the risk is that we find that a large proportion of the at-risk people don't end up taking up the vaccine. We haven't got a way of tracking who they are. We can't communicate them. We can't understand their fears and we can't uh, persuade them to take it up. And that means that we'll be ending up um, at Easter with a chunk of people who are at risk but have not been vaccinated. And that's going to make it very hard for us to start unlocking. David, from your experience, what is the best way to convince people to take a vaccine? Well, I think it's relatively easy at a time when people are dying and are in hospital in huge numbers. It becomes very much harder if the virus has has gone quiet for them to feel the same level of need. I think that the more we have data that convinces people of safety, the easier it will be. And the more we have data on the effectiveness that we start to see the vaccine stopping people coming into hospital, then again, I think that will give reassurance. I think one of the things that would help greatly now is if the government was actually publishing not just the number of people that are being vaccinated, which is retrospective, but the number of doses that they are expecting to get every single week. And if they released that information, we would know what is ahead of us. And if those numbers of doses didn't materialise, then actually the government isn't to be blamed here. It's actually the suppliers. And I think if we only knew how much vaccine is coming each week, we'd know much better how many of the risk group really can be protected. And I think that helps with Richard's concern about those who are not so easy to access, who don't look at their mobile phones to see if there's a text message from the practice and who may may be indeed harder to get to. Matthew, just to take you slightly back to the EU again, what have been the most recent developments in the past day or so in in terms of how they're responding to what you call vaccine gate? Well, I think, I mean, there are two uh, things that have happened in the last day or so. I mean, one is they're, obviously, they're scrambling to catch up. I mean, I think they put out a lot of the kind of traditional stuff would you'd expect from the press office and, and the political leaders saying, no, 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 it was all fine. Um, we did we did an excellent job. But they're, they're clearly scrambling to catch up in terms of extra orders. They approved the Moderna uh, vaccine on Wednesday, possibly earlier than you might have expected. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how quickly they approve the Oxford vaccine, given that actually that's the one they did order in in really big quantities and they they got to rely on that to come through because it doesn't look like they're going to have enough of the Pfizer one unless Pfizer changes their mind a little bit and puts them higher up on the list which they which they might do so they are scrambling to catch up but the other thing that's really going to be fascinating is just the amount of political fallout it's become a huge political issue in Germany I think that's understandable I mean it's a great piece of German technology and the Germans are really good at that kind of thing I also thought it was I noted this in the piece I I did for you there was you always ironic not just a German technology we actually used a Munich-based consultancy uh, by a farmer excellence who who advised the MHRA on how to speed up the regulatory process, which again was a, you know a good thing to do. You can speed up regulatory processes without compromising on safety. We all know that. I'm sure David can confirm us for it. There's lots of bureaucracy in the system. There's ways that you could just you know push it through faster because you really really have to. It, it, it what's an emergency situation. We tapped into that German expertise, but the Germans didn't. So it's going to be interesting to see if they approve the 
Oxford vaccine a little bit sooner than, than they seem to be doing at the moment. At the moment, the EMA says they haven't, you know, received all the paperwork. But, you know, why not get on the phone? <laughs> they, get, they come back to this, you know, maybe AstraZeneca haven't got around to submitting it all yet, but they do have a phone number over there and you can get on the phone to them and you can say, hey, could we have it? We'd like to have a look at that data. We'd like to start approving it. Or you get on the phone to the MHRA and say, can we have your stuff? Can we do some kind of equivalence arrangement? You're in an emergency and this, you know, this is an emergency. People are dying every day that you delay getting these jabs out. You know, you can calculate these numbers quite precisely. The number of people that are going to die every single day is significant. So you really shouldn't be delaying to this extent. And the, the other point I make about what's happening is it's just become a huge political issue in Germany. The Germans are understandably very aggrieved that this hasn't gone according to plan, that it seems to have been bogged down in EU political inertia and incompetence. And I think that's completely understandable. I mean, you know, if the Oxford vaccine wasn't available in this country, and if it was being, people were being inoculated in Germany or France or Sweden or Italy, but not in this country because the government seemed to have messed up, <laughs> I, think, I think we'd be writing about it, wouldn't we? Uh, you know, it'd be on the front pages of all the papers. And I think Keir Starmer would be jumping up and down in the House of Commons, uh, waving all kinds of accusations around. So I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of heat on the, on, on the EU and, and a lot of questions to be answered. David, do you think that's fair that Britain has done a better job of bypassing some of the bureaucracy involved in these sorts of processes? The MHRA has done really well, and it's perfectly clear that they have not cut any corners in the processes they've gone through, and that the rolling review that they have done was exactly the way to do this job. What I think is interesting is that, looking back, the EMA did a, a fantastic job for pandemic influenza vaccines. They came up with a really innovative scheme that would allow very rapid uh, licensing of pandemic flu vaccines. And the FDA were way, way slower. They didn't have anything like the EMA scheme. So I am a bit surprised that the EMA seems to be on the back foot on this occasion with a slower process. I have no doubt about the competence of what they will be doing, but it could be questioned about the speed at which they're doing it. Thank you, Richard, Matthew and David. Next. Support for Scottish independence has surged during the pandemic and Nicola Sturgeon is more popular than ever. In this week's magazine, The Spectator's deputy political editor Katie Balls argues that while the First Minister hasn't managed the crisis all that well, she has benefited politically. To discuss, Katie joins me now alongside The Spectator's Scotland editor Alex Massey. Katie, you write about Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon in this week's politics column and you say that the Tories now see Scotland's First Minister as the real opposition leader. How is she causing problems for Boris? I think she's causing some immediate problems, but I suppose the bigger issue what worries Tory MPs and also ministers is the problem she could cause them in, in the months ahead. And you have a situation where I think through the coronavirus pandemic, you've seen probably tensions or the divisions across the United Kingdom exacerbated because we have seen how devolved administrations can handle things differently in terms of the health response. And I think specifically in the case of England and Scotland, that has been of benefit to Nicola Sturgeon and not been of benefit to Boris Johnson. So we now have a situation where I think there was recently a poll suggesting Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings are better than Boris Johnson's, even among English voters. She is not a voting option for voters in England. Some, Some would be disappointed by that and I think there's generally been a sense that Nicola Sturgeon even though I think if you looked at the 
facts and the data in terms of how both countries have handled coronavirus in terms of death tolls, there's not, you know, too huge a difference. Both tend to be in the, the lower ranking end. There is a sense that she has been more deft at handling it politically. And there is this general aura around her that she is consistent in her messages, whereas Boris Johnson is not. And what we saw this week was when Boris Johnson announced that national lockdown. A lot of people thought it was coming, but I think the moment people thought it was definitely coming was in a couple of hours before Nicola Sturgeon announced one, because there's a general pandemic rule when Nicola Sturgeon makes a decision is not too long before Westminster follows, and that is not good news for the Prime Minister. Alex, Katie says that Boris is now the SNP's greatest weapon. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, all the polling available from Scotland uh, suggests as much. You know, there is essentially a 100-point gap between Boris Johnson's approval rating in Scotland and Nicola Sturgeon's approval rating. So much so, in fact, that even a significant number of Conservative voters in Scotland are prepared to credit Nicola Sturgeon with doing quite a good job on the whole uh, vis-a-vis the pandemic. And, you know, vanishingly few SNP or Labour or Liberal Democrat supporters are prepared to grant the Prime Minister the same sort of generosity of verdict, if you like. And that is a a problem. I mean, before Boris Johnson became leader of the Tory party, before he became prime minister, plenty of senior conservatives in Scotland were very concerned by, as they put it, the reality of the fact, which is that if the SNP had been asked to pick a conservative leader themselves, they would almost unanimously have chosen Boris Johnson. And so Scottish conservatives have long been worried about this. Boris has an ability to appeal to parts of Middle England, if you like, but uh, very little ability to appeal to Middle Scotland. And nothing that has happened this year has changed that. Indeed, I would suspect that everything that has happened in the last 12 months has actually reinforced that problem. You know, I suppose the good news is that Whitehall and the government have recognised at long last that they have a problem in Scotland. But there is obviously a significant difference between recognising you have a problem and finding the solution to that problem. And how is Rishi Sunak viewed in Scotland? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the Chancellor um, benefits from a couple of things. First, he's still, despite everything over the last 12 months, relatively unknown. And that is a significant advantage. Second, to the extent he is known, he is known as the guy who writes checks. And writing checks to the public is generally a pretty good way of earning a degree of popularity with voters. In the longer, broader term, however, a lot remains to be seen. You know, you could hypothesise a situation in which he replaces Boris Johnson and becomes Prime Minister and is sort of seen in Scotland as, you know, a, quote, clean skin, unquote, unsullied, um, untarnished by some of the baggage that the current Prime Minister brings with him, and that he would therefore be in a better position to, if you like, reset the Conservative Party in Scotland, reset the case for the Union, and do so in ways that Boris Johnson struggles to. All of that is, of course, possible, but it remains a significant hypothetical, not least because, of course, there is no vacancy in Downing Street at present. And I believe that Boris Johnson still believes that he is the man who can actually sort out Nicola Sturgeon, sort out his Scotland problem. Katie, you say that Tory MPs are worried about all of this, but that they also hope that the Brexit deal might take some of the heat out of the independence question. How how likely do you think that is? So I think it has already helped a little bit, just in the, in the situation that 
had there been a no deal Brexit, I think that's something that the SNP would completely have seized upon. And you saw that in all the weeks leading up to finally agreeing a Brexit deal, where Ian Blackford used that question at PMQs to really focus on what would you do in the event of no deal. And Scott Tory MPs are, in a way, they think that Nicola Sturgeon misjudged that because it meant that when there was a deal, it just looked almost good by comparison of no deal, regardless of what was in it. It was a bit harder for the SNP to attack on it. But I think you've got to look at this all through the, I suppose, the perspective of the Scottish Parliament elections, which are supposed to be in May. As far as we know, they are going ahead some previously cancelled because of the pandemic. And if Nicola Sturgeon wins a majority there, now, at that point, she's going to ask for a second independence referendum. We expect Boris Johnson to say no, but this is essentially to say no in a skillful way. And then I think the unionists want as much time as possible to try and change the perspective on the independence debate, because it has risen through the course of the coronavirus pandemic. I think the fact they have avoided a no-deal Brexit is one thing. I also think uh, if you speak to Scottish Tories, they would love an end to COVID for many reasons, but also because it would stop Nicola Sturgeon's daily press conference on the issue. While Boris Johnson has not been a regular on the screens in the way that some thought he could have with those, Nicola Sturgeon has done it really every single day and they think it is effectively a political party broadcast now. Uh, And then I think moving on from that, if you can, I suppose, push a second independence referendum into the medium grass if not the long grass and you probably end covid you have a brexit deal which doesn't exacerbate tensions you potentially get to a sunnier place but then i think people would start to talk about the personalities of boris johnson and nicola sturgeon and just finally alex one of the government advisors that katie speaks to in her piece points to this possibility of a of the SNP staging a catalan style non-binding referendum as a form of protest do you think that's likely at all No, I think that's a misreading of the situation, to be honest, and perhaps the only part of Katie's column that I would disagree with, though, of course, as you rightly say, that that this is what she is being told by people inside the government rather than her view herself. I I see no prospect of Nicola Sturgeon advocating such a thing. She is a naturally cautious politician, not given to a wild swing for the fences of that sort. She's acutely aware of the fact that, you know, Scottish independence, if it's to happen, has to be recognised and accepted by the international community and that means it has to happen on a on a firmly legal basis you know an an officially sanctioned referendum is the only game in town as far as she's concerned you know i think for for unionists the the challenge is not so much to persuade people that independence is a bad idea although there are obvious and significant costs that come with it but to persuade people that it isn't necessary and you know one of the problems that the uk has experienced in the last 12 months. It's a combination of Boris, of Brexit and of Covid, a BBC problem if you like. Um, One of the problems for unionism is that these three things have come together to persuade an increasing number of people that independence is the solution to a whole range of problems. Now, the task for, for, for unionism, it seems to me, is to is to make the constitutional argument disappear by making it seem irrelevant. Now, for that to happen, it seems to me that you probably need popular and obviously competent and successful government in London, and it wouldn't hurt to have economic growth tricking along at 3% a year for a number of years, you know, because then 
when you create the conditions of, if you like, sort of placid peace and prosperity in which constitutional arguments begin to seem slightly beside the point. Now, there is no magic wand that can be waved to generate these conditions, obviously, but in the longer term, that seems to me to be a sort of fruitful opportunity for for unionism. Simply shouting louder, putting flags on, on, you know, UK government-sponsored projects in Scotland or simply saying to to Scots that it would that independence would be a disaster strikes me as being unlikely to succeed in the short to medium term. It is only really by changing the subject, by refusing to play the game, if you like, that you can hope to win the game. Thank you, Katie and Alex. And finally, since leaving the royal family, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have moved on to the United States, starting a non-profit claiming to unleash the power of compassion and even starting their own podcast. They're inspired by Spectator. In this week's magazine, Spectator contributor Melanie McDonough says that after cutting himself off from the royals, Prince Harry is becoming more and more like his mother. To explain, Melanie joins me now alongside the journalist and author of Harry, Conversations with the Prince, Angela Levin. Melanie, in this week's issue, you suggest that Prince Harry is turning into his mother, Diana. How so exactly? I suppose it's difficult to say because they're separated by time now because she was a girl of of her age and Harry is very much a product of his. So there's no exact replica because there can't be. But insofar as you can draw these comparisons over time, it does seem that there's similarities. They both came from broken homes, a product of broken marriages. There's a degree of personal trauma there. There's a capacity on a, on the positive side for talking human and talking directly to people and engaging with people, at least before Harry went to California. And there's also that personal quality of impulsiveness and going for it in terms of acting impulsively and then living through the consequences later. It does seem that although there's no or little physical resemblance between them, there is at the level of background and disposition. Angela, you've written a biography about Prince Harry. Is this something that you've noticed? Oh, very much so. And he spoke about his mother as if she was still alive, saying to me, I know she is watching over me and I know she's telling me what to do and which charities to go for. And I want to keep pleasing her. It was a little sad, really, because it seemed like a a small boy who still wants to please his mother. And he thought of her as if she was frozen in time. She died when she was only 36, which was the age of Meghan when they met. And he said on the engagement interview on BBC television that he knew that his mother would be jumping up and down with excitement and that she and Meghan would have been best pals, Hmm. which is a rather extraordinary thing to say about your mother. I don't believe that either. Hmm. I think that of all the people on earth, Princess Diana would have seen Meghan coming. She would have had a very shrewd estimate of precisely what kind of person she was. And I'm not entirely sure that things would have taken in quite the course that they did had Princess Diana been around. She was no fool. You took the words out of my mouth. Yes, I don't think she would have liked Meghan at all because Meghan doesn't understand about the monarchy. And the monarchy was very important to her. Although she left it and she left Charles and she hated a lot about it, she was, of course, brought up in an aristocratic home where her father worked 
for the Queen. And so she knew how important that was, and that would be prime. The second thing is that she wants her two boys to stay together. She did everything possible to make Harry not feel left out because William had all the privileges, like his grandmother inviting him for tea and talking to him about being a king, but not inviting Harry. Very difficult for a young child. But she did her best to make him feel valued and that he did have something, but she really wanted them to be close. She would be devastated by the fact that they're now barely talking. Angela, you, I mean, do you get the impression that Harry seems more content now that he's left the royal family? No, I don't, actually. When I spent about 15 months with him, he was... He exuded royal stardust. He was charismatic. He was enchanting, really, and and a bit complicated, and he could get irritable, but I quite like complicated, irritably-based people. But he loved it. He loved being direct with the people, just like his mother, that was. You know, particularly those who were damaged psychologically or physically, like ex-servicemen. And some of them, after he met them, came up to me and said, he's the first person that ever made me want to live. Because after their injuries, they were very depressed. He could do it in a few minutes. And that was, that was very important. But now I see a washed out, scared, anxious man who, instead of just being spontaneous and connecting with people is trying to lecture us. And we don't see the royal family in that light. We see them as supporters, we see them that they encourage us, they care about us, almost like an extension of our family. But we don't want to be said, you know, you can't go on, on planes, although I can. You can't have more than two children because of climate change. You've got to be careful of your unconscious bias. And wouldn't you all like to be a fair a, a raindrop? You know, it's all sort of nonsense. And I think he's reading it because he is desperate to be loved and wanted by Megan. Diana was desperate to be loved and wanted. And he's done the same thing. And he's happy to take second position to her when he was not happy to do that about William. And, and he's, he's a sort of, he's a shadow of himself, I feel. Melanie, do you think that the public is missing Prince Harry? No, all the polls suggest that they think that he's pretty well lost it. But I think there is a sense in which um, there's a marked gap there in public life. As Angela says, he does have a capacity for relating to people like ex-servicemen who can respond to a very direct and compassionate approach, which was his forte. And I think that it's asking a lot for Prince William to be able to provide the heir to the heir to the throne stuff and the empathy. I think actually that Prince Harry did have that capacity for direct communication, like his mother, which is wanting in the present royal family. And that I think is probably a loss. And just finally, we haven't really spoken about Meghan so much. Angela, do you think Harry's now very much seeking Meghan's approval on everything he does? I think he's desperate for her approval. Sometimes when the two of them are sitting on a bench and Meghan turns around and looks at him and when he says something, which she obviously knows he's going to say because he's obviously reading it, it's not Harry's language, she would nod. And it seemed to me almost like a sort of very strict teacher who was there making sure he did the right thing. He always wants to please her, just as he said before the wedding, what Meghan wants, Meghan gets. He felt besottedly in love with her the moment he saw her. And not surprisingly, really, you know, she's sexy, she's beautiful, she's intelligent, she's got lots of good qualities. I think the, these 
less good qualities that I feel are, have come up later where it's, it's money grabbing and it's using the royals to help your publicity. I'm surprised and quite shocked that he hasn't stopped that because he knows full well that the Queen, his grandmother, who he told me he loved and would do anything for, would totally disapproves of royals using their title to for yeah. commercial gain. He's monetised the royal family, or rather, his wife has monetised uh, royalty by allying it with Netflix, Spotify and the other big corporations. And I can't conceive that Princess Diana would have done that. Um, in some ways, their values were similar. I think where she around now, she'd be very much um, supportive of her son's campaign on behalf of people with mental health problems. And I think she would have been quite open about her own her eating disorders, her suicide bits and all the rest of it. I've got a feeling that that's something that she would have very much bought into. But the whole idea of capitalising uh, royalty, I think, is something that would have been entirely alien to her. I think I completely agree with you. And of course, his vibrance when he really cares about someone and he wants to talk to them could have been so helpful during these very difficult times. I think William has changed quite a lot and can be more open and, and a bit more emotional. But Harry is absolutely a whiz at this and he would make people feel they, they could work to the future, they would be all right, rather like the Queen in her special messages. It's a real talent that comes naturally and much more than they putting on this latest website. You know, People should write in and say how they can activate compassion. And of course... That really sums it up in a way because I wrote that, you know, it's not a button that you press. It's there within us, in our heart and in our soul. How extraordinary somebody should ask how you do it as if it's a mechanical process. The whole thing was just dribbled from beginning to end. But the thing is that he's now pretty well lost to any useful sort of public role. And in a way, Diana, at the end of her life, was she had that very poignant lunch with Tina Brown at Vanity Fair in New York, where she seemed to have got over a bit the bitterness of her divorce and separation from the Prince of Wales and was saying, what a pair we could have been. And she did realise that they had complementary attributes and was saying that together they could have done something remarkable, Charles doing his stuff, the environment and the rest of it, and she doing her empathetic outreach exercise. And in a way, you have the same sense that something's been lost, with poor old Harry doing a hostage-speak stream of consciousness from, from California. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Angela. And that's everything this week. If you buy a copy of the magazine, you'll find everything we've talked about, along with Freddie Gray on how the Democrats took control of America, Andrew Marr on being frightened of coronavirus, and Will Noland on being sacked from Eton. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.